would open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1. This is the day that we begin a study into uh, the book of James. This is how you have time to find the book of James. 30 seconds. James 1, 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. For when you doubt, it is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord because such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. You see, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. So don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all creatures. And that's the word of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the word that you've spoken. And I pray that it wouldn't just be an academic exercise, uh, but a spiritual excursion this morning that you would speak in spite of me, uh, through me, and to each of us individually. And it's in your name that we pray, amen. The book of James is the journey that we're starting, and if you're a rule follower, how many rule followers we got in here? Excel spreadsheet people, C on the disc chart. You people love James. Like you're the ones that were liking it and starring it when I said we're studying James. Because you love rules and James has a box for everywhere on the spreadsheet that you can fit something into. 
And we just went through uh, Ephesians, and I felt like in Ephesians, the challenge is to take something so ethereal and to make it practical. And I think in James, the challenge is to take something so practical and remember that it is, in fact, spiritual. Uh, James is a great, uh, for me, was a faith saver at one point in my life, because here's a guy. This isn't Peter, James, and John. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And look, what do you do when your brother says he's God? Like, that's crazy. And what you do, the gospel actually, the gospels have an account of one, one they came to take Jesus and take him home. Like, look, I, I, I know it's weird, he's, but come on, Jesus, we got a, we got a nice padded room for you. Um, all those magic tricks are great, but, but James was curiously absent from the cross. He was absent at the tomb, but he was conspicuously not absent after that. Because one of the best ways to prove that you're God, remember we told you a couple weeks ago we were in Africa, one of the guys in the village declared God, he's God. And I don't know what it is with God and multiple wives, but the guy had multiple wives. And, but, and the thing is, if you want to prove that you're God, one of the best ways to do that is to become publicly executed, mutilated, tortured, murdered, and put in a, in a tomb. But three days later, rise from the dead. That is what convinced James, and it's what convinced me of the resurrection of Christ. And so the book of James in my mind, in my heart, is a great chiropractic adjustment for all of us. If you're not a rule follower, if you've been to the chiropractor, you know what they do. They put you on the table, they put your leg over, and they bend it further than you want it to go, and it pops a lot, and it hurts, and then it feels great. You know that thing with the neck where they, you know, the book of James does that. Reminded of that episode of Seinfeld, you remember? (laughs) Kramer, anyway. James is that, and it hurts for a second, but then it brings a lot of freedom, and he doesn't waste any time at all, because he's writing to a group of people, his Jewish brothers and sisters, who are scattered and who are suffering, and say to them, count it all joy when you fall into trials and tribulations. And he tells us, I think in this passage, these first 18 verses, and we're going to take our time going through this, But what I see in these first 18 verses, what he's telling us is what we face. He's telling us how we face it, and he's telling us who we face it with. And what we face is quite simply, consider it joy when you fall into many kinds of trials and tribulations. And some of your verses say temptation, some of it say tribulations, and I'll explain in a minute why that is. But I was reminded of that this week. I walked into uh, the living room and my wife, it was early morning, uh, and she was doing the, uh, her eyes were swollen, had been crying a lot. And when you're a husband, there's that brief moment of, is that me? <laughs> Normally, I don't make her cry in the mornings. I usually wait till later in the day. So this was, but she, well, you know, I'm a dude and sometimes she just do it, you know, and, um, but this was crying because she had just been watching the uh, DVR from the night before episode of America's Got Talent, um, right? And all you women are like, oh, yeah, I've ugly cried at that for sure. But what she was ugly crying over was a girl that we knew uh, when I was in, the, in 1998. I was just a young agent that didn't know come here from Sikkim. Scott Hughes here this morning. He uh, was an agent, still is an agent. Taught me a lot just by listening to him on the phones. Uh, but I was at William Morris Agency, and no, they, they do not make cigarettes. Um, which my mother thought for you. They make cigarettes? <laughs> yes, Mom. That's what we're doing. 
Although in the 90s, you'd have thought that's what they were doing. They were like pounding Marlboros inside during the daytime. So the times have changed, kids. But we were representing a young girl named Nikki Leonti, and I uh, got handed her as the young agent and the young artist, and she was 16 at the time. How many of you are 16 in here? Ashley, I got a 16-year-old. And Nikki uh, did what happens sometimes to artists, that she caught some wind in her sail, and so she was on tour, and we had her on this tour. Um, as it turned out, it was the right tour, because uh, we had another tour we wanted her on, but it ended up being on a tour with... Uh, friends of mine, uh, the For Him guys, I think Rust Half was on it. We jokingly called it Methuselah Palooza, no disrespect. But it was all these fathers that were on this tour, and Nikki was the only, she was a little teenager on this tour. And, and as it turned out, it was the right tour for her to be on because it was a tour full of fathers. And Nikki, at 16 years old, had, she's 16. I mean, my wife actually, uh, when you send a 16, it'd be like sending Ashley out on tour, and just moving her to California and put her on a bus and then come home and mow the yard. And, but, so Nikki was on her own, and for a little while, my wife was actually the tour manager. It was her uh, battlefield promotion, because we're just thinking, she's 16. You know, when I'm 16, I did so many dumb things that seemed so smart when I was 16. But Nikki, on this tour, found herself, um, as a lot of young women do, she found herself pregnant, and she found herself alone and scared, and fortunately, except around, surrounded by a room full of fathers who loved her. And it was a trial that she stumbled into, and it was a long, arduous journey that she had begun. And uh, I remember for me, it was, in those days, by the way, kids used to have to actually go to a store to buy music, and so they would go into the store. But those stores began to pull their records off the shelf, and the radio stations began to pull their music out of rotation, and I started fielding the phone calls of the angry, belligerent people who couldn't believe she was so, you know, would do such a thing, and I'm canceling it. And, and that was the life that she stumbled into and the life that we were all in. And we ended up, um, Shannon was pregnant with Nikki. She was pregnant with Ashley at the time. I mean, she wasn't pregnant with Nikki, sorry. Pregnant alongside of Nikki. They were like pregnant buddies. Um, and so we kind of took her under our wing, and Ashley was born two months before that, and then Jaslyn was born, Nikki's daughter was born just a couple months later, and it was a journey that Nikki had taken that was a trial and a tribulation, and so the reason my wife was ugly crying was, uh, was this. And who are you? I am Nikki Edgar. And this is? This is my husband, Ryan, and this is my daughter, Jaslyn. Yes. Your daughter? Yes. Oh, wow. Oh. Wow. And, um, yeah, we're a a modern-day family band. And how did this all come about? Well, we've had the failed record deals and the things. When did you have the record deal? I was a Christian artist, and I ended up getting pregnant and being a, um, a teen mom within that. So they kicked me out of the industry, pretty much. Okay, well, look, the good thing about shows like this, you get an opportunity to prove these people that made a mistake, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, best of luck, three of you. Thank you. Oh, why you look so sad? The tears are in your eyes. Come on, come to me now. Don't be ashamed to cry. Let me see you through. Cause I've seen the dark side 
for everybody like <laughs> they didn't actually that clip doesn't actually get to Simon I couldn't find one with Simon otherwise it would have played it apparently they're trying to protect their uh, copyrightable material I, I, I was thinking back at Shannon's guy we might need to get tissues again this is like a, um, they're, compl they're complimentary yes yeah, so, uh, uh, some churches charge extra we just give those out um, <sighs> Like 1998, yeah, they're in the finals. Like, this worked out okay for them, so spoiler. It didn't seem like you could consider it joy. Like, and what James is saying is consider it joy when, not if, but when. You fall into trials and temptations. And interestingly enough, the King James uh, says temptations, and I think the NIV says trials, and you might have. Here's why I think that is. I think that it's because what the enemy means for harm, the Lord can use for good that, Satan wants to show you up. God wants to show you off. He can use the exact same situation, not if, but when it comes, to test you, not in a way to show you up, but to show you off. Now, the enemy, on the other hand, wants to take that and take it as a temptation and drive you to bitterness. Well, God says, no, the same exact situation I can use for betterness for you. And so the test comes to say that yeah, 1998, that felt like a trial, but I promise you that in 2016, Jaslyn isn't a trial. She's joy for her. And it took time, and it took years, and it took testing and a journey for her. And for some of you right now, maybe you're right in the middle of that. When we were in Uganda, Lauren back there was with us. We were waiting on our plane, and Cody Naj and David were, and we were sitting, we were looking out the window of this plane waiting for us and it was late and it was broken now you can be in Africa long enough that you're willing to take the chance to get home right Jana you guys were there Becca and Lydia well you know what I, if, if, if the engine is loose I'm still going to take a flyer I'm just going to try it because we've been here plenty long but they backed the plane away and a couple of Africans down below with ratchets and duct tape and and there's definitely that moment of like, you know, if I, if I, maybe we should wait. And then I'm like, no, 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 never mind. We're, you know, we're going to try it. And we're even looking at the flight path. It's like Mogadishu, Libya. Like there's no good place to, to emergency land, but I'm still willing to take the chance. And the reason I was willing to take the chance was this. 
They pulled the plane away from the gate, and the pilot floored it. I don't know. Rachel, is Nick here? The pilot, like, he, I don't know if you floor it with your foot, but that engine went, like, there's a throttle. Pilot's wife right there. Gunned that thing, like, loud, like if a duck had flown in it, it would have been mutilated, kind of like. And they ran it like that to test it to show that it could fly. And if it hadn't have been flyable, I'm assuming they would have put another zip tie in it. They'd have done something to, <laughs> to make it go. But when you gun it like that, when you're flooring it, when you're testing it, is proving that, that it can work. Proving that the design of that, the designer was right. And that one of the things that gives me a great deal of peace in flying, because I need a lot of it. I get extremely spiritual on a plane just in case I'm wrong about this whole grace thing. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> and I'm not, but just in, you know, just in case. <laughs> and uh, they floor it, and it worked, and it got us home. And I believe that in our lives that that's the Lord, and he's, there's times that the engine is gunning in your life, it's feeling super stressed. Like, I don't think I can do this enough, but it, what it does is it gives glory to the designer because they designed those planes to take way more stress than the world can throw at them as far as turbulence. It can take a lot more than you think it can. It could have dropped that engine and still landed with the other engine because the designer of the plane designed it well. And you and I, designed by God, are hitting moments where he's testing it in our lives. There are things that are flying at us, testing us to prove that we're stronger than we think with Christ in us, that through him we can do all things. And so he says to consider it joy because that's creating perseverance. It's creating strength in you to last. It doesn't say to ignore the pain, by the way. I'm, maybe some of you have felt this when you are in a trial or a tribulation, that it's not if but when, that it's hits you from out of nowhere. And so you feel guilty because I'm, like if you're sick today and you're suffering, you feel guilty well, because I'm supposed to be joyful. And so you feel like that's, and it doesn't say to, hey, when you're in a trial, when it hits you from out of nowhere, don't pretend that you don't feel it. The visceral response for the Forrest family today is, is fear and it's suffering. And Judah's not a failure at, how old is Judah, 10? 10. 10 years old. He's not a failure if he's not considering it joy in the ER right now. But the word consider is the operative word in it. It's almost like an accounting word. When we have something that comes in for, we have money that comes in for a well. I think Amy's here somewhere, a, a bookkeeper. But when that money comes in, we have to account it from somewhere. It has to come from some account. So consider it, when this money comes in, consider this for the well in Africa that we're going to drill next month. Consider this the money that we paid for the carpeting. The suffering, when it happens, consider it to come from the account of joy. Consider it from the account of Jesus. When we're doing the accounting on it, we're going to put it in that account to consider it this. The visceral response is not a sin. But when I take a step back and say, okay, but I know where this is going. I know that this money came in. I know it's sitting in this account, but I know that it's going out someplace else. It's money now. It's a well later. It's suffering now. It's joy later because when it works in you, it has perseverance and it works inside of you. It's considerate joy. It doesn't say also to consider other people's trials. How many of us have done that? 
oh, I feel so sick, but man, there's a lot worse problems going on in here than just me. Have you done that before? I feel guilty for feeling sick and feeling bad about my situation. Maybe you haven't done that, but I have. And he says to consider it joy, not consider other people's problems as if they're worse than yours. Because you know it, when you're in the middle of it, isn't your trial your trial? Like it's yours and it's real. When the rent is due right now, that is a real live trial. And yes, somebody lives in a hut in Africa, but that's their trial. So don't consider others. It's not noble to do that. And it doesn't, if you think about it, did it really help? I mean, be really honest with yourself. Did it work? No, you still felt the trial and all you did was feel guilty about it. What we face are trials and if we're ready for them and if we're prepared for them, we can consider them joy. What we face is trials and how we face it is with pre- uh, preparation. How many of you guys have been in a fight in this room? Like a, like a fisticuffs kind of thing. Seriously? Some of you guys. I mean, Art, that's not a surprise. But <laughs> Adrian. <laughs> yeah, Art, it's like an altar call. <laughs> is there anybody else? Every head bowed, every eye closed. When I was uh, 19 years old, my best buddy was a guy named Troy Covey who had a hot and short temper. And Troy had this ability to get into a fight over almost anything. We were pumping gas at a gas station in Tulsa, Oklahoma in a little red Nissan. And he was working at a suit store, so get your mental picture. He was dressed in a suit and tie. And I'm in the driver's seat, and that was back in the day when you just slapped $5 in the gas tank and it'd get you like a half a tank, and that's all we had anyway. And out of the corner of my eye, I hear this, you know, this kerfuffle. Is, that a, is it a kerfuffle, a thing? <laughs> Troy had decked this guy clean, knocked him right off his feet. And I know pumping gas can be volatile. <laughs> knocked this guy right off his feet. Troy jumps in the car. Is like, come on, come on, go, 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 go. I'm like, dude, we haven't paid for the gas yet. We're like, so we peel around and I drop five, throw five dollars because by that time the attendant's on, I'm calling the cops. I'm... My point being that Troy could get into a fight at any given time or any moment at any, th- and everybody was always surprised by it, including and not limited to me. And what would always get somebody off when you're not expecting it, it's a whole lot harder to defend yourself. And if you take James's words that he says, when you fall into trials, not if, but when, it puts you in a posture of ready, not of surprise. When you fall into trials, the way that we face it is being prepared and to change our perspectives. He gives us that tool to say, hey, when you fall into it, consider it joy. It's a simple thing. It's changing our perspective. Our culture right now is probably the least equipped in the history of cultures to handle trials and tribulations. And when you think about it, I think the reason is, and if I'm wrong, you can correct me afterwards. Um, Oh, heck, you just correct me now. I think we're the first major culture in history that did not believe in an afterlife. We are the first, a secular culture that doesn't believe that there's something beyond now, YOLO, then if I, when it goes wrong here, 
When I didn't get this and I'm suffering, I need to sue somebody because somebody has to pay because they took the only thing that I had here and it's gone. I didn't get the job. I'll never have another chance to make that up. The relationship fell apart. I'll never have a happiness again. And if you're thinking of only this side of heaven, that's probably how you would feel and it's a reasonable response. But as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, and as someone who believes in an afterlife, someone who believes that this is just a whisper, a snap in the scope of eternity, this isn't all there is. So if I didn't get the job this side of heaven, who cares? Because on the other side of heaven, there's something better, which is how Paul would talk about in 2 Corinthians 4, these momentary troubles that he talked about. Momentary, snake bit, 39 lashes, shipwrecked, the list goes on. He said, I consider those as nothing compared to the glory that is to come. Which is why in 9 through 11, he says this thing that sounds a little harsh at first. Rich people, you're screwed monumentally. That's the, the first reading. That's what it sounds like. And it's really fun to think, oh yeah, you think of the rich person in your mind. He's screwed and I'm not. Now take a step back. If you live in the world right now and you spend more than $80 on average a day when you think about your rent, your kids, your, and it doesn't take very long to get to that number, does it? You are in the top 1% of the world. You are rich. And I got good news, you're not screwed. Because when you read what he's saying, if you're poor and you live in a village in Africa, you can take pride on that because this isn't all there is. There's something way better coming for you. I can, I can change my perspective. Think I don't have to, this isn't all there is. And if you're rich, I can take pride. It says in the humiliation. And the humiliation is that, again, think about it. You haven't to this day seen a, a, a U-Haul behind a hearse, anyone? You can't take it with you? In Egypt, they tried that in the pyramids. They buried all their stuff there thousands of years ago. And guess what? It's still there because they didn't take it with them. The humiliation was they couldn't take it with them, but they can take pride in it because there's something far greater beyond the other side. So take comfort and take peace because the trying of your faith works perseverance. And this isn't all there is this side of heaven. We're facing trials. We're facing with changing our perspective and who we face them with changes everything. We have, uh, at least for the next few weeks, we got a little uh, small farm in College Grove. One week? Whoa. <laughs> we might need some help packing. Um, in Hosea 10, verse 12, the Lord is talking to Israel and talks about their fallow ground and needs to be broken up. Fallow ground is like our pasture. It hasn't been plowed, and it's not been farrowed, broken up. You know, you guys have, you get your, your tractor and the plow behind it. It breaks up the ground. And fallow ground is ground that hasn't been tilled up. And what the Lord is saying to Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12, is to break up the fallow ground and sow Righteousness. In Mark chapter four, Jesus would tell a parable about the sower sows the word. Do you remember this? It says that the sower would sow the word and, the, uh, the, and the, the seed is the word of God and that some of it will be picked off by birds and some of it will fall on the earth. 
and some of it will fall on rocky ground, and some of it will fall on good soil. And the good soil is the soil where the word of God is growing in and in your hearts. And so that all sounds great, doesn't it? And you want your soil to be good soil. You want your ground to be good ground. I want mine to be. But it's easy to forget what makes the soil good. It's easy to forget how the soil gets to where it is. A.W. Tozier wrote a piece a long time ago, and I'll just read a few verses of it. It's called uh, Fallow Ground, if you want to search it and read the whole thing later. But this is what Tozier says about fallow ground. The fallow field is smug and contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. The plow is what digs the dirt. The harrow is what pulls the rocks out. They're two different things. And when you're 20, by the way, and you haven't bled much yet, isn't that us? Like, it's easy. I'm easy. I'm reading Hebrews 11, and I'm fired up for the first few verses of that. They conquered nations. They defeated lions. You haven't bled yet, so you love that. I love that at 20. 45, I've seen people that have come back without an arm from the lion. At 45, I've seen the city didn't get conquered. And you read in verse those verses of Hebrews 11, there's not even a break in the sentence. And it goes from, and some were killed by the sword, and some were eaten by the lions, and, some, and both were okay. They both belonged in the hall of faith. He says that such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and to the blue jay, safe and undisturbed. It sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Looking at our pasture, the the birds, ours are more like owls and hawks picking off chickens, but be that as it may. It sounds content, but here's what he says, that that fallow field is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor does it see the wonders of bursting seed nor the beauty of ripening grain, fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. And direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow and the plow has come as plows always do. Practical, cruel, business-like and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery, the field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and to consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. And one of the greatest sentences ever written in the English language, nature's wonders follow the plow. What Satan has meant for harm, I believe that God can use for good. And some of you that are in that trial right now and you're thinking, Darren, this, isn't a, uh, this is not ethereal to me. This is right now. I'm feeling it. I'm in it right now. 
and I feel the soil of my heart being turned over. I feel it just everything is upside down. And, and I would encourage you to think and to look at the hands that hold the plow and to remember that they have holes in them. And the feet that push the plow have holes in them. The back, the strength, the back-breaking work of a plow is a back that is covered with scars from a farmer that loves you. And that it hurts and it sucks and it's painful sometimes. But we live in a Genesis 3 world, not a Revelation 21 world, not yet. It's already and not yet. That's the world we live in. He said, if you need wisdom, ask for it. So that's a big famous scripture, isn't it? But it's specifically talking about if you're in suffering to ask for wisdom. And what is that wisdom that he'll grant us in that moment? Have you ever seen somebody rock climbing before? It's terrifying to me, these guys that free climb. But it's this slow and arduous process. Because they've got one hand in this hole, this crag right here, and they've got a foot here and one here, and then they've got, they've got to let the other one go to reach to find the next one. And it's reaching into the darkness, it's reaching into the unknown, and each one, I don't know if this is going to be it or not, and I just, the wisdom that I think he's talking about mirrors that in this way. Those of you that have lost a loved one, those of you that have lost a child, those of you that have someone who is sick right now, and you were to make a list of 10 things that someone said that were helpful and 10 that were not helpful, I'll bet on your list would be things that were helpful to you that are not helpful to somebody else. Your list of one through five of what was helpful might be mirror the exact opposite of someone's list who isn't helpful. I needed a scripture verse. I needed someone to, and someone might say, that wasn't helpful at all. I just needed someone to come and sit with me. When you are in a trial, ask for wisdom, and as you begin to reach out, you'll find, okay, that one's not gonna be for me. This foothold is, but this one is. This one's working for me. This one isn't. This, so it saves us. We don't have to be angry at those who aren't helpful. We're just saying, okay, that's not a rock that I can hold on to. This footstep, ooh, that's not going to be, but this one might be. Just don't let go. Ask for wisdom. And he says, don't do it you know, without doubting anyone. And of course, that's, doesn't that sound harsh? Again, it's James. No fun at a party. <laughs> Pour in a bucket of water. But is that what he, does it sound as harsh as it means? Think Jesus with me a minute, his brother. I think it's Mark chapter 9, where a man came to Jesus and he needed a miracle bad. And he said, if you can do this, Jesus, and Jesus said, if I can do it, if you believe, I'm, it's done. And what did the guy say? I think we should tattoo this on our foreheads. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe Jesus, but, I, but help me believe. Because we're thinking of this as like a psychological, mental, I have to, you know, Christian science thing. I can't doubt, doubt, doubt. You know, I don't think it's that at all. I believe, help my unbelief. If it's just a mustard seed faith that moves a mountain, then that's enough. I believe, help my unbelief is enough. So I don't think it's that. I think that this, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. I think double-minded, it means dual loyalties. And in our dual loyalties, if we're, for instance, if, if your relationship and you put that person in the middle of your relationship, 
that they are everything. I'm holding on to them. That person effectively for that part of your life becomes God to you in that life. And if that person walks away, you are essentially godless at that moment. You are tossed around because your God is gone. So double-minded is just, I'm just taking my loyalties and I'm putting them all together into one Jesus. The example that Jesus gave, right, was the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock. You remember the song for Sunday school? The wise man built his house. upon. That's why I don't have a music career. I don't know how you do it, but I feel like this has been my journey. My house got knocked over because it was on the sand. I rebuilt it with a little bit more. I'm pushing it. I'm nudging it like Alaskan bush people style, just pushing it a little bit more on the rock and a little bit less on the sand. And when the next one comes and it throws me, I've pushed it a little more. So I'm 45. I'm good 30 years into my walk with Christ. My house is a little more on the rock and a little less on the sand. And our journey towards transformation is a house that will one day be fully and firmly planted on the rock. And when those tests and those trials come, what it really does, it reveals for me, oh, this is just a place I had my house on the sand. Of course it knocked me out. Of course it, because I had it here. So you get back up, you push yourself, you nudge it back a little bit more. And if that's not your faith journey, like congratulations, I'm really excited for you. But for the rest of us, <laughs> the rest of us reaching out for this rock and this one and hoping that I... You, for those of us pushing our, rock a little, our house a little bit more onto the rock. The double-minded man is, look, I'm going to handle this all by myself. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine, man, I'm fine. And your world is falling apart. One of the reasons James is working so hard to build our small group community up and our deeper community in our, is so you have somebody to be sitting next to you to say, I believe, but help my unbelief. A double-minded man comes in here and says, man, I am fine, everything's great. I'm going to handle this myself. I'm not praying to God for it. I'm not. The double-minded man is saying, I got this handled, God. And you become a, a situational atheist. On this situation, I got this one handled. I'll let you take care of this one. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. My encouragement to you this morning is to push your house a little bit more onto the rock this morning. And my encouragement to you this morning is to Listen to the knock on your fence door because I believe that there's a farmer who loves you who wants to come and to tear up that soil, wants to throw those rocks away so that you can bear fruit, fruit that lasts. And you can build those walls. Well, don't we all do it? Man, I got hurt once and I'm never doing that again. She left me and I, that's, I know now that's my story so I'm not doing that. Or I tried, I was at a church and they hurt me and I'm, I'm not doing that again. And so what happens is we kind of build these walls that ultimately keeps each other out and it keeps Jesus out. I would like to invite you, I would like to double dog dare you this morning. And kids, you know, that's huge. <laughs> like I went from zero to nuclear on the dare scale. I double dog dare you to open your heart to Jesus this week, to the adventure and to the risk of loving your neighbors as yourself, to the adventure and the risk of trying one more time, to the adventure and risk of walking up to a complete stranger who's a police officer and say, you know what, I don't even know you, but I love and I pray for you and I want to give you this gift. A double dog dare you to take the risk and to open that door and let the, the farmer with holes in his hands 
come in and break up the hard soil of your heart this morning. Would you do that? Oh, I hope you will. Stand with me and let's pray. Those of you that are in the middle of it right now, it has hit the fan this week. You don't feel happy right now, but you can consider it joy. It's the visceral response. Don't beat yourself up over that. When Lazarus died, what did Jesus do? He wept. He was mad. Because this is a Genesis 3 world. It's not how it was supposed to be. It's okay to weep. It's okay to be sad. And it's okay to know, to look forward in faith and to count it, to put it in the account of joy. Because one day you'll get to spend it on that. But for today, we mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep and we pray right now, Lord, for those in Baton Rouge. We pray again for Judah, for those in our own family right here who are in a trial, in a temptation, Lord, that you would, you would use it for their, uh, their good and for your glory. That we could today count it as joy. Consider it joy. For those of us that life hasn't hit yet, I pray that we will be ready for when it comes. And then maybe today, Lord, we as a church family, we walk out of here, just all of us with our house a little bit more on the rock and a little bit less on the sand as we swing open the doors and allow you, the, the good farmer, to come in and to just till up the hard soil of our hearts. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.